We're in Luke chapter 16. Let me invite you to uh, turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at one of the parables in the time that we have this morning. There are more than 30 parables in the New Testament, and most Bible interpreters and commentaries agree this probably is the most complicated to understand of all of them. And it's not as though this preacher is going to clear up all that complexity this morning, but we will look at the parable of the dishonest manager. Before I read the, the parable, which is rather brief, uh, I recognize that um, money and possessions affect us every day. We spend our time, most of us do, every day de devoting some time to either how do I earn it, how do I save it, how do I spend it, how do I negotiate it, how do I give it, uh, how do I plan for the future, how do I pray for, plan for the distant future with inheritance and all that. Uh, so what does the Bible say about money? I want to devote the next uh, five sermons, including this one, to that question. Uh, these are not five sermons on giving. We're going to look at what the Bible says about borrowing, uh, about, we will look at some about giving, about spending, about saving. All of these things are, uh, saving is, is taught in the Bible and, and hopefully to equip us in a rather complicated area that many of us struggle in uh, every day of our lives. Uh, and so today we look and ask, does God offer any direction for our help? And here we come to a, a rather simple storyline, but it's a complicated explanation. So beginning in verse 1, and he said to his disciples, that's, that's Jesus speaking, some of the disciples, uh, some of the parables were given to other people. This one was spoken to the disciples. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's a simple story in that there are very few characters. Now, the context is important. It's always important in interpreting the Bible. 
Just before this parable, Jesus has told the parable of the prodigal son who takes his share of inheritance and goes off and wastes it then comes back to his father asking to be received as a servant. The parable after this is about a rich man and a poor name, name, a man named Lazarus. And the rich man dies and goes to Hades and Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham in, in the afterlife. Uh, and so this one is right in between those. So Jesus is talking about money. But here, we're not quite sure what to make of this, that he seems to be commending this dishonest manager. So let's just glance through the parable again. I'll make a few notations, and then the three lessons at the end, we'll look at those briefly. Uh, very common in those days for a wealthy person to hire a manager or a steward to manage the household, to look over their business interests, whether agriculture or whatever it might be. In this case, obviously, with the olive oil and the, the wheat, uh, agriculture was involved. So there was no need to explain this when Jesus mentioned it. It was a very common thing to understand. In this case, this rich man hears charges, accusations that are brought against his manager, the one who has been with him, has been managing his affairs, the accusation is not that he is stealing. The accusation is not that he's done some uh, bidding on the side. The accusation is he's wasting your possessions. He, uh, he's taking your reward points and spending them for himself or something like that. He, he's, he's doing something that's not explained, but it's enough to where the, the rich man calls him in and basically says, I want to see the books. I want to see the books right now give account of your management, and the evidence is conclusive. So in verse 3, the focus now turns to the manager. And, and when it says, and the manager said to himself, so now we move from what's happened in the story to the managers in his thinking, and he says, what shall I do? In other words, I'm getting ready to lose my job. What's my future? And I'm not strong enough to dig, to dig ditches, Maybe he was older, maybe he just didn't have the strength to do physical manual labor, and I'm ashamed to beg. So he has a purpose in mind. And in verse 4, he comes up with this plan. I know what I'll do. I've decided what I'll do, he says. And he decides to, to carry out his plan uh, to take care of himself. We must see here, his plan is all about self uh, perpetuation. He, he's trying to take care of himself and protect himself. He's not concerned at this moment about anybody else. He is, he is concerned about, okay, I have got, I'm in trouble and I, and I need a solution quick. He faces the reality of his situation. So in verse 5, he puts his plan into action. This rich man probably had a long list of debtors and all it says in the, in the verse is he called them in one by one. But we only have the conversation with two of them, though we can assume there was a long list. So he, we, we think that's intentional, that he did not want to hear the arrangement being made that all of them to hear. He didn't call them together as a group. So what he did with one uh, debtor, he didn't do exactly the same with the next. And we have the gist of the conversations with these two when he basically says, how much do you owe my master? What's on your contract? What's the balance? And in verse 6, the first one says, a hundred measures of oil. 
Now, this isn't crude oil. It was olive oil. And from what I've read, that is a lot. This was not a household that this man's representing, the debtor. This is a corporation. And so this is a, a big capital expense. And he says, uh, I owe you 100 a commercial account. And the man says to him, the dishonest manager, all right, take your bill. We're renegotiating a contract and write 50 on it. Then he calls in the next one. And he says, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. Again, from what I've read, that's a large amount of wheat. It, it would have been a commercial account. How much do you owe? A hundred? He says, write 80. Write 80 on the bill. We've just reduced your bill from 100 to 80. Now, what's going on? What is he doing? This is the complexity of the parable. And we've got about three options. One is, some interpreters say, well, he's reducing it by his own commission. That his commission on the 100 wheat would have been 20%, so he tells him to write 80. Uh, there's, that's a weak argument. Uh, another is that um, he's just reducing the amount knowing that once the contract, a new contract is done, he's trying to hurt the, uh, the rich owner for firing him. That doesn't make sense in light of what comes. Here's what makes the most sense to me and apparently to a lot of other Bible interpreters that I respect. And that is that you have to understand the usury laws for the Jews at that time. Now, the Old Testament was very clear when you look at Exodus 22 and at Leviticus 25. Exodus 22 says this about Jews dealing with Jews. It says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who are poor, you shall not be like a money lender and you shall not exact interest from him. It's, it's repeated almost the same in Leviticus 25. So there was clarity in those days that among the Jews, by law, you could not charge high interest rates when you loaned money. From all indication, what's pointed to here is that rich owners would get around that by, say, you we're going to sell you 80, uh, you're going to pay 80 for this, this, this wheat, but we're going to charge you 100. They would put the interest into the loan itself and then make it look like you owe 100. Therefore, if the person could be questioned, if the rich owner could be questioned and said, wait a minute, why are you charging 100 when it's 80? He could say, well, I didn't know anything about this. My steward must have done something and cause the figures to be higher. So that seems to be what's going on here, that that being a common practice to get around, to get around what the law said. They wouldn't, they wouldn't itemize the interest. They would just put it there at the same time. So it's a clever move. What the man is doing then is charging, reducing the contract to what it was supposed to be. And the rich owner can't call him out on it or else it makes him look like he was complicit. Now the rich owner, being shrewd himself, when he sees this, says, that's pretty wise. That's pretty shrewd. So he commends him for his shrewdness. And in a sense, the dishonest manager has painted the owner into a corner because he can't really say anything. And now, now he's accomplished his goal. He's leaving the job. There are no charges against him. And he's made friends with all these people by reducing from anywhere from 50% to 
of their bills. So here's the gist. Let me retell you the parable just real quickly and then three brief lessons. The dishonest manager is fired, but before he leaves, he negotiates with the debtors to the owner so that they owe the owner less than before. The fired manager hopes that these debtors will feel obligated to him so that when he is jobless, they will help him out. So he uses his wits to figure out a way to manipulate money to secure his future. Now, there's only one way to see this guy as our example, and that is how he prepared for his inevitable future. And that's what seems to be commended here in verse 9 when Jesus said, For the sons of this world, that is a term for unbelievers, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, who are believers, in the sense that they look ahead and face the reality of the situation. All right, you still with me? Now the three life lessons at the end. A lot more could be said here, but just three things. First, in verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Some key words here. First, eternal dwellings. The dishonest manager, by the way, and this, this is really important, he's called dishonest because of how he treated the owner in the beginning of the parable of wasting. He's not called dishonest because of the way he dealt with the people that owed the owner money. Okay, so that's very important. That's why it's confusing to read that title. Jesus is not commending him for wasting the, the owner's possessions. That's what earns him the title of being dishonest. So eternal dwellings, in other words, Jesus is telling his disciples not just to think about earthly future, because that's what the manager was doing, but to secure an eternal future. And he's telling us how to have housing, you might say, forever. This other term important here is unrighteous wealth. What's that mean? I mean, money's neutral. We know that. The Bible doesn't condemn money, but the love of money. It's just a way to separate. It was a term that should be understood as opposed to heavenly treasure. So the term unrighteous wealth. And then when he says, when it fails... That points back to chapter 12, verse 33, when Jesus said, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Same term. It does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So, meaning to fail in that all earthly wealth, all earthly possessions will ultimately fail in that they do not go into eternity. John Calvin said the phrase, when it fails, means the hour of your death. And Jesus is not saying if it fails, it's when it fails. For some, it, it, it will fail in this life, not at death, but if you put your trust in it, it will let you down. So when it is gone, or when we die, and money is no more use, then we should think about eternal friends. So here's the summary of, this, of that lesson. If the unrighteous steward, using questionable means for temporal ends, was commended by his master for his shrewd preparation for the future, how much more 
Will a believer using honest means to prepare for eternity receive his master's commendation? The second lesson is a character lesson. I won't read it all, verses 10 to 12, about being faithful in little things or dishonest in little things. We, we know that. Character will always be revealed in life. How one deals with the small things is definitely an accurate predictor of how he or she will deal with the big things. If one tends to bend the truth or cut corners in the small things, then uh, you better believe they'll probably bend the truth and cut corners in in the big things. So Jesus is saying small things are a big deal (laughs) of how we treat them. Now this is the part of the, this this past week as I was immersed in in this study of this, this is the point that stood out. Because it seems today that among Christians, the idea is, well, once I become a Christian and Christ's lordship begins to affect my life like concentric circles, that first it affects my relationships and, and my behavior and what I do and what I don't do, and then, then way out here, if I really grow as a Christian, it will begin to affect what I do with money. What does Jesus call our use of money here? A small thing. He calls it a small thing. And that if we're not faithful with a small thing, like how we use money, how will we ever be faithful with big things that God may entrust to us? Let me explain. Compared to other areas of obedience is small. We just sent out some missionaries from our church. Think about the Jones family uh, down in El Salvador. Is it easier to give, to support, or to go. Giving is a small thing compared to learning a language, being immersed in a culture, uprooting your kids, all that. It's a small thing. Not too long ago, I had lunch here um, with a Christian pastor from Jerusalem. And he is a converted Jew. And now he pastored a church. And we went over to eat lunch, and all the time we're, you know, when we're walking over there, he's kind of looking around. We walk down the street to eat, and uh, he's packing a pistol, and he sits there facing the door as, as we eat. He said, I will not walk out of my house without a gun. He, he's kind of like, you're not dressed. <laughs> he's looking at me. And I thought to say, well, I'm in a church where I think half of them are. <laughs> so he, yeah, I thought, okay, what would... How would I be responding this week if I was a Christian pastor in Israel? That's a hard thing. Writing a check, that's a small thing. You know, relatively speaking. I'm not saying, he's not saying it's insignificant or that it's not difficult. But compared to other areas, it's a small thing. Is it easier or smaller to give? If you're in a serious relationship and you become a Christian and the other person is not and y'all are talking about getting married and and you say, I can't marry this person, which is harder, to give or to break up that relationship? This is a small thing. Giving is a small thing compared with that. So how you and I handle money is a test. We can fake a lot about the Christian life. You can come into a worship service and 
look like you're paying attention. <laughs> you can uh, mouth the words, sing the songs, uh, do the corporate readings like we did a few minutes ago, responsive readings and prayers. Uh, but your heart may be a million miles away. But you can't fake giving. How we handle money is objective. We can look at the ledger. It's, uh, so in that sense, it's a test. How you and I use it is an evidence of God's work in our life. Third lesson, and that is the impossibility of serving both. This is not the only place in the New Testament where Jesus says you can't serve two masters. Of course, it's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, almost identical wording, if not the exact same wording. He's just stating a fact. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And mammon was a word for money, possessions, just everything of the material world. He's not making an observation that it's difficult. He's just saying it's impossible. Think back to the book of Genesis. When Joseph is sold by his brothers who hated him because of their father's favoritism toward him and they sell him into slavery rather than killing him, they decide let's at least make some money by getting rid of him. So they sell him to a caravan. He's taken down into Egypt. And there he is purchased by a government official who has the title of Potiphar. What if there had been another government official that had purchased him? And Potiphar and this other official said, well, here, you're going with us in this direction. And the other one said, no, you're going with us, Joseph, in this direction. Or you need to sit down. And the other one says, you need to stand up. It can't work. And so Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. What does it mean then for God to be our master? And I'll close with this. In the, in the last moment, I just want to give you a summary of the good news of Christ. You may be sitting here today, so what does it mean for God to be my master? I mean, he's, I don't see him. Uh, here's what it means. God made everything out of nothing including you and me. And his purpose in making everything out of nothing was for his own pleasure. And the chief way in which you and I bring him pleasure is by loving him, obeying him, and enjoying him perfectly. But instead of this, we broke his laws, we committed crimes, we sinned against our loving creator and acted against him in rebellion. And God has... Because of his character, God has said he will judge. He will judge righteously and lovingly people, sinners, with eternal death. That's the punishment. But also being merciful and loving and generous and just, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he lived as a man. He fulfilled God's law in every respect. And he loved God and obeyed and enjoyed him perfectly. And further, he bore God's judgment upon himself on a Roman cross. And he satisfied that payment that God said he must do to punish sin. He died. And he did so in the place of others. So God treated Jesus as a sinner, although he was perfect, he was perfectly sinless, and he did so that God might declare sinners like you and me as perfect because of Jesus' perfection. Now that happens, this occurs, this transaction, as you or I put our faith, our trust, our dependence in the Lord Jesus as our substitute, that he died in my place, 
took the death I deserve. And then God now takes Jesus' perfect record and gives it to me, and he takes my failed record and placed it on Jesus. And God furnishes proof that this took place by raising Jesus from the dead. That's the proof of the resurrection, that God has carried out this plan. And then we know that God will judge the world in righteousness and all those who are not covered in the righteousness of Christ, who are not depending on him for forgiveness. So God invites all of us, all people everywhere, those of every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue, to turn from sin and to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and as Master. That's what it means. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, live often by the urgent, by what's necessary that day without thinking ahead that like this uh, dishonest manager did, that he saw the reality of his situation, saw the need to do something about it then, not to wait. We pray that you'd give us understanding and application of, of storing up treasure in heaven where there will be eternal friends in eternal dwellings. In Jesus' name. Amen.